Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the show. Those of you who've been longtime listeners will know that probably a couple years ago, I did a podcast on how Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, which is the flagship seminary of the uh, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, had started to trend in a cl uh, classical liberal theology direction and had been brought back uh, as part of a very controversial takeover by conservatives. One of the most uh, rare times that conservatives actually seem to have uh, overcome uh, an organization that was trending left and brought it back to a more conservative direction. And those of you who, who did it know that I basically butchered every name that, that I said and yeah. that I was obviously just reading from a Wikipedia page and didn't know a lot about what was going on personally, which I was very transparent about in, the, in that uh, podcast, to be clear. But today I have someone who has studied this a little bit and has a little more uh, in-depth knowledge than I do, and that's Eric Lefevre. So, Eric, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Eric is in the LCMS. He's currently joining us from a an undisclosed location uh, on special uh, assignment, uh, but uh, he has studied this significantly and has some insights to share on it. So maybe this will be a better version of that podcast than I originally did. So thank you for joining me. I'm a pleasure to be here. For those who don't know, can you just give a little bit of a background on what the mm -hmm. Lutheran Church Missouri Synod actually is and how it fits into the overall picture of Lutheranism in America? It's uh, it's kind of a a very small, tightly, well, it was found as a very small, tightly uh, knit German congregation. So there was like a lot, lot of complicated history, but the uh, Prussian monarch at the time, who was a Freemason, basically did a forced union of all Protestant churches within his domain, which was Germany. And so the forerunners of the Missouri Senate basically left Germany in the middle of the 19th century and moved to Perry County, Missouri, to basically have an area where they could practice uh, what the church called a pure doctrine. That's German, but I don't speak German, but like that's what the Missouri Senate was founded to do. And it it's Unlike a lot of other Protestant denominations that were the product of like mergers, although they, the Missouri Senate did absorb a few smaller senates, it just kind of grew. And so that's why, for example, there are two seminaries in the Missouri Senate, and I think at its peak, like 11 seminaries in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the mainline Lutherans, because each individual uh, church that merged into the ELCA brought their own seminary. And so it's like the the... the the congregations and these the historic ones have a very German character. You see a lot of German last names there. And like some, they have some converts from adult males, but it's mainly a German congregation where if you look at the pastor roles, you'll see a lot of very familiar last names that repeat. And a lot of those pastors are four, five, six generation pastors in the Missouri Synod, some of whom have ancestors that came over on the ships that brought the original Germans to America. Interesting. So uh, the main line Lutherans, as you noted, the Evangelical mm -hmm. Lutheran Church in America, then you've got the, the Missouri Synod, which mm -hmm. is a more conservative denomination. And then there's also, a, I think, one other major one called Wells, the Wisconsin mm -hmm. Evangelical Lutheran Synod, which is similar to, I think, the Missouri Synod, but maybe a little more uh, persnickety on a few points, uh, which yes. is why we've never <laughs> heard of them. Um, how many people are in the uh, the LCMS? 
Uh, at its peak in the 1970s, it was about 2.7 million. So it was a decent sized body. Uh, there was, of course, the split will go off too. And then it kind of stabilized at like 200 to 2.3 million or so for the next 30 or 30 years or so. And then beginning in the late 90s, it began a very slow decline. And then starting in about 2010, you know, it started going declining a lot more and a lot of that has to deal with uh basically the the church is baptizing about one third of the children that it used to when it was you know 2.7 million and actuary tables are are a thing yeah but it's still like over a million people uh it's 1.7 or 1.8 million there yeah just in contrast, a lot of my listeners are very familiar with the Presbyterian Church in America, which is a conservative uh, splinter denomination uh, of Presbyterianism, and it only has, you know, 300, 350,000 mm -hmm. members. And so the Missouri Senate is actually a pretty sizable group in yeah. terms of, you know, because conservative denominations go. And, you know, in these sort of mainline churches in the uh, Protestant tradition, uh, which Lutheranism would be one of kind of the mainline mm -hmm. traditions, you could say, there had been this trend over the 20th century towards a more liberal theology, which today, when you say liberal theology, people tend to interpret that in terms of things like abortion or sexuality. Flags. Yeah, but at that time, would have referred to things like belief in the historicity of miracles or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, treating the scriptures as sort of human documents and applying these historical critical methods to them and other things of that nature. How did that trend affect the LCMS? So when the Missouri Synod was founded within the original charter of the Concordia Seminary, which trains all of the pastors, they had a clause in there mandating that the seminary would forever be taught in German. And the original uh, like leadership structure was very, very, very intent that the Missouri Synod remain a German church. Um, beginning in the 20th century, insert lots of complicated politics here, we formed an English district, which basically were immigrant German congregations that had begun speaking English that wanted to do worship language in English. And so that became a thing. And then as the Missouri Senate basically put deeper and deeper roots into the United States, an increasing percentage of the Senate was, you know, now speaking English as opposed to German. So by the 1930s or so, the Concordia Seminary, which trains most of our pastors, there's two of them, or all of them, uh, that their journals started publishing from English as opposed to German. And so when the Concordia seminaries were actually expanding, they were basically buying up a lot of books and they were buying up a lot of English language books to replace their German language ones. And they also began hiring, and this is going to become important for the split, lots of English language faculty members. And of course, these English language faculty members, uh, a lot of them be got their advanced degrees in liberal German universities back in Europe like University of Tübingen, University of Erlingen, and a few others. So, and like, as the seminaries slowly switched from German into English, there was an Americanization of the Lutheran church. And 
that becomes really important is that like the identity of the Missouri Senate began to blend more and more into the mainstream life of the of, of, of the Protestant churches. And for a lot of people still affiliated with the church, this is kind of a difficult concept to grasp given how much the mainline has shriveled. But if you are going to be incorporating yourself into the American mainstream, that means mainstream Protestantism, and that means a lot of theological liberalism. Yeah, so this, in some respects, is part mm -hmm. of an immigrant assimilation story. That is that, that'll be correct, yeah. Although maybe it took a little longer to assimilate them than it did, say, the Ellis Islanders, because it sounds like these are <laughs> pre-Ellis Island, uh, the, a lot of them. The uh, German migration that founded specifically the Missouri Synod came over in the 1840s, yep. and so they then uh, basically networked with a lot of other German-speaking churches in places like Chicago, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, you know, where places where Germans came to the United States and settled. And so they basically amalgamated into the Missouri Synod. And aside from a few small, smaller groups that they would absorb, it just kind of grew. It's interesting that liberal theology originated in Germany in the 19th century. That's mm -hmm. my understanding of it. Because yep. that was the, they were the foremost scholars of the world mm -hmm. were in Germany in, in almost every domain at that time. And it sounds like the original German language liberal theologians of Germany mm -hmm. did not affect the Missouri Synod. So the founders of the Missouri Synod, C.F.W. Walther, and his incredibly capable successor, Franz Pieper, um, they had a lot of really bad things to say about the liberal German theology. So they wanted to maintain the what they call the Orthodox Lutheran period from the 16th to the 17th century. And they were also... Uh, very, very skeptical of the modern liberal movements that were coming out of, you know, places like Oxford and all the major universities of Europe. And so they were content to main, to basically live within their German ghettos. But as time went on, those walls slowly came tumbling down. I mean, I just actually learned this recently, a fantastic book by James Burke Shale, The Dying of the Light. It uh, chronicles the decline of Christian identity within American universities. And one particular fact struck with me that as late as the beginning of the 20th century, there were only six public high schools in the Chicago area, which given how huge that city is mind blowing. And the answer is all of them were living within their own ethnic communities, having their own tiny ethnic colleges. Like we have Concordia Chicago, which historically trained German language teachers for the German language churches. And so, like, as these began switching over to English, you know, the Concordia University systems began struggling to get, like, actual German language teachers willing to take a lower salary, you know, teaching basically in parochial schools. And they began basically picking up more and more, uh, you know, of mainstream teachers, more mainstream administrators. Like, the original bureaucracy was little more than the meeting room for the president's house, wherever he happened to live at that time. But then the bureaucracy quadrupled inside as managerialism began creeping in. And all of this just kind of independent little streams, rise of liberal theology, Americanization, growth of the bureaucracy, the growth of the public schools, which squeezed out the old parochial schools. All of that was like independent streams that fed this river. It's interesting you say those things because so much of them resonate with Presbyterian history mm -hmm. as well, the rise of bureaucratization. 
uh, a church that I attended here uh, when I was living downtown, uh, they were giving a little history of their church in the bulletin, the monthly magazine. Mm-hmm. And uh, they mentioned when they had hit a thousand people, they hired employee number two, uh, other than the pastor. And mm-hmm. there just were there were just no staff at these <laughs> places. And there's a, a great um, doctoral dissertation by I think it's Christopher Schlecht is his name called Onward Christian mm-hmm. Administrators. <laughs> and he makes the argument that it was this rise of bureaucracy in managerialism that mm-hmm. led to the Presbyterian Church ordaining women because it redefined everything in terms mm-hmm. of functional roles and things of that nature. So these things are going on. It also sounds like the the LCMS had the same issue that the Presbyterian Church had, which it had mm-hmm. become in the 19th century, early 20th century, sort of uh, uh, common or almost expected that if you wanted to be ordained, you would actually mm-hmm. go to Germany and study in Germany mm-hmm. for a year or something like that. And then they came back with all this liberal theology. So these were English-speaking Americans who went yep. to Germany and brought it back in English. And it sounds like at a later date, this happened with some of the other people. They went, and the Lutherans went to study mm-hmm. in Germany and brought it back, but it was the English speakers, that brought, not, yep. the, not the original German speakers. The University of Tübingen, I mentioned, is one of the major centers of Protestant liberalism. Like uh, for the more nerdy listeners of your podcast, Ferdinand Christian Bauer, who basically denied the authorship of the entire of the entire books of the New Testament, aside from a few exceptions, because Paul had to write something, right? <laughs> but like he was from the University of Tübingen, and that stings particularly in the Lutheran tradition, since the, the University of Tübingen was where. Uh, where Luther's great student Philip Melanchthon was 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 teaching a student that's that like where the Book of Concord, the Lutheran Confessions, were written. Those mm. were a lot of product of the University of Tübingen, and that was the very school that was basically pumping out all the theological modernism. Yeah, so it sounds like again, much like Presbyterianism, mm-hmm. that modernism entered the denomination through the seminaries. Uh, so, yeah, that is correct. So it's going in there, and, and Concordia Seminary, uh, certainly in St. Louis, there was another one. I mm-hmm. don't know where it is. but they uh, had At the st- time, it was in Springfield, Illinois. Yeah, and so they were starting, this was starting to go on in the seminaries. Mm-hmm. And there was all this cultural and social pressure towards assimilation to this very high-status, mid-century, Protestant, mainline consensus that was also dragging people in that direction. Mm-hmm. How did that play out politically within the denomination? Um, well, it depends on who you talk to. So in terms of the laity, it basically floated as well as a rock. Um, in terms of like the seminary and the bureaucracy, they were almost totally on board with it. And so like there was this just enormous split evident well into the 1940s between the laity on one hand and the church leadership on the other. And there was this almost chasmous gap there between the two of them. So like a, a lot of it was like the process of catechesis where the pastor was catechized and like the pastor only hands on what has been given to them. And so the pastor began showing up and talking about, you know, like the multi-authorship of the Pentateuch or, you know, like the anonymous gospels and the lady responding to these sermons like this, like, this is not what we were taught. And so the laity beginning well into the 1940s, like the late 1940s and into the 1950s, uh, were basically like, um, 
we would like, we're perfectly happy with our little confessions. Please, we'd like to protect them. Please, seminary, stop. And the seminary would always respond with, yes, yes, we'll, pour, we'll form a study group to discuss that. And then, of course, it's never heard of again. Mm. Again, very Presbyterian, where the, yeah. the ministerial classes were far more liberal. Well, far than, more liberal. Than the congregations. And I, I think mm -hmm. people don't realize how conservative many of these congregations were uh, for a very long time. Even today, a lot of these congregants are actually these, these mm -hmm. old ladies and things are not as liberal as their pastors, but they just sit there in the pews because that's what they've always yeah. done. But it sounds like this ultimately, unlike in Presbyterianism, uh, where you know ultimately there were some kind of splinter groups that, bo mm -hmm. that broke off maybe, this provoked a sort of a reform effort within the mainstream of the denomination. Uh, so what happened there? Well, it's, I mean, that's very complicated, but like the, the lady had access to information sources about what was going on in the church that was independent of the existing denominational like machinery. And so the Lutheran witness would basically, which is the official magazine of the Missouri Synod would publish articles saying that like, no, 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 nothing is in fact changing when in fact everything was changing. And there were several laity and anonymously clerical sponsored magazines that actually had huge circulations at the time. Like at one point, like this tiny outfit named Christian news was mailed to every congregation of the Senate because they, they had the kind of donation backing to support that publishing activity. And a lot of those magazines were serving to alert the laity within the church to what was going on within the mm -hmm. bureaucracies and the seminaries. So that was, mm -hmm. that was very, very important. So maybe a, a variation of what today might be called mm -hmm. a discernment blog. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, and, and this, this was just little, little newspapers. I mean, some of them would publish like transcripts of what the pastors were saying in pastors congregations, and they would just publish them. This is what your pastor is saying in private. This is what your pastor is saying in public. And just, it, it was just jarring what they were saying mm -hmm. there. You know, like denial of the historicity of, of Adam and Eve, you know, denial of the resurrection which is a big deal. No original sin is just just all of this. Like the pastors were saying one thing to each other and another thing in private. You know, there so, was a oh, sorry, go on. Well, I was just say this strikes me as a very important thing. There was an independent media. Mm -hmm. Yes, there was well-funded, mm -hmm. well-resourced independent media. That's that is correct. Because they had a lot of laity that were providing financial backing to these organizations to get the message out. And it's like that, that you really can't understate just how important those independent media streams are. So who started the campaign to run this stuff out of the denomination? So we mentioned earlier that the, that the energy of the lady was kind of bubbling up for several years, while at the same time, there was movements of counter elites within the denomination that wanted to arrest the slide and basically get the ship back in the right direction. And a lot of those counter elites would eventually congregate and coalesce around the candidate of one man, you know, President Price, J.A.O. Price. And so they basically, if you've ever been like, involved in church politics, like conservatives within the church tend to organize their firing squads in perfect circles. Right. And they almost, 
<laughs> it's and and they they it just destructive purity spiraling. So any movement you can get together just winds up fracturing over issues big or small, and it's really difficult to keep all of the keep all of the frogs in the wheelbarrow long enough to get you to the destination. Right. But like the counter elite developed, they they were able to do that, and it was it's just an amazing feat of how they were able to do that. J.A.L. Price was really interesting. He's actually not a member of the Missouri Senate until very, very recently. He was a member of a splinter group of Norwegians. And when mm. the other churches began noticing, you know, Missouri's liberal slide, J.A.O. Preuss and his brother Robert Preuss were instrumental in convincing those smaller bodies to break fellowship with the Missouri Senate. So like in 1955, we lost fellowship agreements with the Evangelical Lutheran Senate. And in 1961, we lost them with Wells. And something interesting happened that about a year after those small senates broke off, J.A.O. Preuss was not was elected as president of a Missouri Synod seminary. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, that's interesting. Now, I had heard that one of the things that was unique about uh, the Missouri Senate in general was that there was this rule, denominational rule, mm -hmm. that you could not be appointed the pastor of a church in the denomination unless you had gone to a denominational seminary. That is correct. Well, which is very different from most of the rest of the Protestant world. And how, um, how did this guy, in, in light of those strong barriers that existed, mm -hmm. And in the light of the fact, it sounds like his own denomination had sort of broken off uh, away from, yes, we're not going to break fellowship with the Missouri Synod. How did he get elected? How is that even allowed? I have no idea. He, I know he transferred his membership to Missouri Synod congregation. Uh, there is a process within the Missouri Synod called colloquy that you can, if you are a minister in another uh, church, you can be evaluated and then certified for ministry. And so I'm assuming he got colloquized. But when I was doing the research, I noted those two facts and there's just information gap between them. And I'm like, how did how how did this happen? And the answer is, I don't know. But 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 it did. Hmm. Was there maybe an organized faction that probably was just was. looking for a leader like that him probably was. to bring in? J.A.O. Price. Um, he was less of a like theological churchman. He wasn't like a theologian, but he was a really, really good politician. And it's like we often like have negative connotations when we when we describe people as politicians. But people with that skill set are very, very important because someone needs to keep all the frogs in the wheelbarrow. Yeah. So he takes over as president of this seminary in Springfield. Mm -hmm. I guess it's yep. the one in Springfield. And what does he do after he's there? Um, he basically uses that position to build, uh, to basically build a network within the Missouri Senate because, you know, probably about 65% of our pastors or so at the time were trained in St. Louis and the remaining one third were trained in uh, Springfield. And so he was able to like coalesce a group around him, a like-minded group that was pushing for renewal. And the critical moment came when in 1969, after about a decade or so, maybe a little bit less than that, of being president of the Concordia Seminary in Springfield, Illinois, he was elected president of the Missouri Synod in a 
pretty much a shocking upset. Nobody was expecting that. I mean, the, the leadership at the time was like dead set on merging in with what was becoming the ELCA. Like people often think, oh, the ELCA merger started in the mid 80s. Like, no, there were actually merger discussions going on three decades before that. And oftentimes the elites within the denominations decide to merge well before the lady are even told that that process is happening. Hmm. So this guy is in another denomination, mm -hmm. becomes the president of the seminary in the Missouri Synod, and in short order gets elected president of the whole denomination. That he had just convinced his previous denomination to break fellowship with. Wow. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. And what did he do when he was president? Um, so there is a pretty detailed and arduous process by which a uh, like the president of this of the of the of the denomination exercises discipline and oversight over the various agencies. And there's a really important clause within the Constitution of the Missouri Senate. Uh, I'm not going to quote it to you directly. I'm going to paraphrase it. But like the president's job is to inspect the doctrinal integrity of the associated institutions and pastors of the Missouri Senate. Um, if he detects that something has gone awry doctrinally, um, then he is to admonish, he is to rebuke, he is to uh, publish his findings and report the issues to the Senate because the president cannot take any actions at all unless he is empowered by a resolution passed by the Senate and convention. So like the first thing Preuss does, he just follows that process. He establishes a fact-finding committee to interview the faculty members of Concordia Seminary, by far the most liberal seminary, you know, like in the Missouri Senate, well, the number one of two. And he basically he creates a book called The Blue Book, which is a, an interview, a transcribed interview of what was being taught at the seminary and then publishes that book to every congregation of the Senate. And the information that I found on there was that like the Senate was largely shocked. They knew things were bad. They passed 17 resolutions condemning the spread of liberal theology. But there was like after 17 resolutions that this is what is being taught. And so the next convention, then there was another movement to begin to give the president the authority he needed to basically discipline the uh, the faculty members of Concordia Seminary for violating their oaths to uphold the standards and teachings of the Missouri Senate. Yeah, you can pass resolutions all day yeah. long, but that, you know you have to have follow. The left doesn't follow actually care follow. about your resolutions. They nope. They don't even really sometimes care when you mm -hmm. admonish them. It's just complete defiance. As yeah. well as we'll we'll see, as, yeah. as what happens. So, did he get this authority he needed to? He did. It was a wafer thin vote, but like so, we have the sentiment. We have what's called the board of control, which basically functions as like the the board of directors or the board of trustees of an institution. They're ultimately responsible for oversight of the whole seminary. Um. The theological modernists had invested a great deal of money, time, and effort to make sure that that board was under their control. And so, like, if you're trying to correct a ship, yay, you've got a new president. Yay, he's doing fact-finding. But he, he's engaging with institutions that fundamentally oppose everything he's trying to do. You're not going to accomplish much. And eventually, people will get tired, and they can go back to the same old, same old, you know. A tale, political tale as old as time. So at the 1971 convention, 
they basically were able to uh, get the authority they needed to force the board of control to act upon what they what, what, what the findings of the blue book. Well, the board of control didn't do that. And so they came back with the most divisive, the most important, uh, you know, synod, the, the conventional synod, so synod's convention, basically in the history of the church, where they basically dumped two members of the board that were up for re-election then, they were removed. So the conservatives now had a majority on the board. And more importantly, they uh, required that the board of control implement the findings of the blue book. And the resolution 3-09 that the passed by the Senate and convention stated that what was being taught at Concordia Seminary was false teaching not to be tolerated within the church of God. And so that resolution, how that resolution passed, I'm still mystified. Years later, Preuss gave an interview about that very important convention dealing with, like, to say that the liberals behaved badly during that would be the understatement of the century. Imagine, do you remember, do you ever watch any of the clips of the 2019 Methodist General Conference? Uh, I have not. Yeah, well, they were even worse there than the liberal Methodist war in 2019. I mean, just constant disruption of the proceedings. There was like, you know, Robert's Rules requires a 60% vote to bring closure on just about anything. Well, they had a 58% majority of the voting delegates, 2% shy. And so the, the, the left wing was basically blocking at every point the, the convention's ability to do anything because they could not invoke closure. Hmm. And then they got closure after a marathon multi-hour session. And I'm like, how did they do that? I don't know. I, I found no information on how they got the votes to bring closure, but they did. And they got the, uh, they got, they got the resolutions through, which after the findings of the blue book and following that process, they gave the synodical president power to remove the sentence president, uh, a theological liberal named Don, John Teachin. You know, you talk about the importance of being a good politician mm -hmm. and making yeah. these things happen and just being able to operate in those kind of parliamentary mm -hmm. uh, environments. They make people's eyes water. It's like, oh, great, parliamentary rules. Yeah. Yeah. But they're important. So, you know, my uh, wife has been reading Robert Caro's biographies mm -hmm. of Lyndon Johnson and talked about, you know, in Master of the Senate, it talked about he came into this institution as a freshman senator, mm -hmm. one that had run on strict seniority rules forever and essentially took the thing over and all the wheeling and dealing he was a master politician that he mm -hmm. was able to find ways to get the vote mm -hmm. that he needed it wasn't just like trying to convince people oh you should support my side it's like well let's cut a deal or i'll threaten you or mm -hmm. we'll do this or we'll do that and understanding how to make that happen is critical I, I, I don't know how he managed it. I don't. If you look at the convention workbook, which you can find on the Missouri Senate's website, if you go searching, uh, you will see uh, like resolution upon resolution with the effect of this resolution is tabled due to a lack of action from the Senate. Just pages and pages of those because, you know, the left was blocking everything. And so they managed to get it. There was, the, you can actually find clips on this on YouTube. They uh, staged a protest where they started singing the church's one foundation and throwing their notes of protest down to, to basically signify their displeasure at this supposed lack of unity being showed or lack of charity to these 
poor Christian professors who are just trying to be faithful to the church and the confessions. And mm -hmm. you can still find clips of this disruptive behavior on YouTube. Very interesting. So it was passed mm -hmm. and now they've got control of this uh, seminary. They've installed a new board. So they're working their way mm -hmm. through. We got elected president of the, uh, of, of the Synod. Now you've got essentially controlled the board of directors of the mm -hmm. seminary. Uh, because it sounds like, like in most of these denominations, mm -hmm. the actual entities have their own boards. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, like in the Southern Baptist Convention, they're set up to be isolated from control by the actual denominational infrastructure. There's a lot of things mm -hmm. that are set up. So now they got control of the board, and they're doing something to this President Teachin mm -hmm. character. So what they happened with him? Well, he was basically one of the one of the big drivers behind the push for the consolidation of all Lutheran churches into one body. You know that we eventually called that the ELCA, and he was a huge booster of that project. And he was definitely willing to compromise on the beliefs needed to make that merger happen. So the Seminary Board of Control said, "Okay, Teachin, we have been empowered by the Synod. You must deal with these charges of false doctrine." being taught within the seminary and no one was expecting teaching to do it. He refused. And that after he refused to discipline the faculty members, teaching himself was suspended as president. Because once again, because of the Missouri Senate's constitution, you had to pass these resolutions to give the synodical president the power to do that. And who replaced him? They appointed a new president. That is another really interesting take. So, uh, the Missouri Senate Seminary at Concordia almost quintupled in size in 20 years. It used to have a faculty of about seven. And then by the, by the end of the 1950s, its faculty was about 40 to 50. And the liberals were in charge of hiring all the new professors. And so the, uh, a lot of the professors they hired on were basically only other liberals who had the same liberal credentials. And one of those liberal, pre one of those liberal, uh, faculty members was named Charlemagne, Professor Charlemagne. He was the one who was basically the first president, first professor to openly teach, you know, critical biblical theory in the seminary, you know, modern higher criticism. They, they credited him with bringing that to the seminary. He was later rebuked in the, by, by name in the Senate and convention and then repented. And then a few years later, I don't know what happened, but he basically would agree to work with the conservatives to write the institution. So the, actually one of the original liberals from the Senate became president uh, and then, you know, basically started working for renewal. But he just, his tenure didn't last very long. His tenure basically was about six months because just the emotional toll behind what was going on was just draining for everyone. He resigned six months into his term and had to be replaced with another a member of a more moderate conservative uh, wing of the uh, Missouri Senate called Ralph Bowman. So mm -hmm. that's kind of how that happened. But like the key moment, and this is where like the left really made a tactical blunder here. Um, they basically all agreed to walk out thinking that like the loyalty that the Missouri Senate had to the seminary in particular was going to be so strong that the Missouri Senate congregations would walk out with the faculty. Tactically, it probably would have been a lot more prudent to basically force the administration to go after them one by one. 
because as you've seen these conflicts before, eventually the energy runs out. But they didn't do that. They made this great walkout. You can find clips of that online too, where they're just waving their crosses, planting them in the yard and doing their walkout. And then the board of control said, you're under contract here. Fulfill your contract or we will be terminated or you will be terminated. They didn't. And so in one fell swoop, all 45 of the left-wing professors of the seminaries were fired. Right. 90%. Of mm-hmm. of the of the faculty walked out. My understanding mm-hmm. is the majority of the students walked out with them. It, it was a, a not quite ninety percent. It was between eighty five and ninety percent. Yeah, and you also had you know, this situation. This is in the seventies, right? Early seventies mm-hmm. to mid seventies. This is really big peak counterculture time. Yeah. I think the backdrop is probably all the campus unrest of the sixties, where the yep. people who did things like occupy the administration building and mm-hmm. they got away with it. That was seen as a way to make progress. I think in part because those institutions were essentially controlled by sympathetic parties, mm-hmm. or at least ones that weren't, to, you know, constitutionally opposed to what the students and you know were doing. And this was just a different story because you had a mm-hmm. different group of people who actually controlled the machinery. Uh, yep. uh, and so uh, we, we can talk more about that in a mm-hmm. moment, but it had to have been a media circus. Oh, it was. it was. Oh, my goodness. Like the the like it, I found when I was doing my research for this, you know, about 15 articles published by The New York Times you know, over in New York about this issue. And we're not talking like little blurb articles. We're talking like full column length articles about this issue. Uh, in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the large local paper there, there was like, it was the number one media story there for about 10 years. And it was the it, the only other topic they covered more in depth than the Seminex crisis was World War II. And so yeah. it's like, this is like there was a huge amount and like even Christianity Today, which was founded as a magazine of supposedly conservative evangelicals, um, they weren't as biased as the New York Times and the other media were. But they were like they were more like a both sidesism. So you would expect the magazine of conservative evangelicalism to you know, show a somewhat sympathy towards a conservative faction. But when I was reading the, the, the clippings, that, that just wasn't there. Like the entire press was arrayed against them. Hmm. Well, um, that's really interesting. Um, you know, it must have been difficult because that's what happens today. Mm-hmm. Because whenever a conservative faction seems to be winning in some institutional ex- dispute, mm-hmm. the liberals send up a flare to the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, like the Washington Post, the Atlantic, the New York Times, they start pounding you and they start calling you bad names. That happened back in around... Um, 2017 or so with Russell Moore in the SBC, mm-hmm. there was a big concern. He was, they were going to force him out, might lose his job. All of a sudden, all these media articles appear quoting these black pastors talking about how it throws the racial reconciliation mm-hmm. mission in yeah. jeopardy. Basically, we're going to call you racist. You fire this guy. And it's very effective because it's very mm-hmm. difficult for anyone to stand against the New York Times. That is correct. But I mean, it's like, the press was less open about their biases then than they are now. But like, if, if you read those articles published by the Times or the, or the Chicago Times or the St. Louis Post Dispatch, it's clear which side they're rooting for. But they but they at least give off the pretenses of balance. They will quote you know President Preuss in the article. They will quote you know you know conservative lay people. But it's always like 
couched in a way to let the reader know which side is right and which side was wrong. Right. Um, you know, like the media has really always been biased. It's just they were smarter about hiding it 30 years ago. So the the kind of new president they had, he did mm -hmm. the Ronald Reagan with the air traffic controllers. He fired them all, basically. Um, the board of control, basically, uh, which is oversight of the president. When the uh, seminary president refused to fire the, you know, discipline the 45 members of the faculty, um, they suspended the seminary president. You had the walkout. And then, you know, when the, uh, when the, when the, when the faculty walked out, the board of control went and said, faculty, you are in violation of your contract. You must return to classes or you'll be fired. The faculty refused and they were fired by the board of control. Yeah. Now what happens here, I think is interesting because I think, I think today they wouldn't have made this tactical error, as you said. Mm -hmm. Rarely do leftists walk out of organizations. That is correct. It's almost always conservatives that uh, walk out. Um, Paul Vanderclay, who's in the Christian Reformed mm -hmm. Church, he's got this uh, quip. He says, "You know, denominations split uh, split right, and they sort of um, uh, left. lead left." Yeah. You know, we're sort of like people just sort of leave, it evaporates off to the left. Mm -hmm. You don't have these big splits. And, you know, one reason, I think, as you say, the kind of left or more liberal factions tend to have control of the denominational machinery. That gives them tremendous power. Mm -hmm. And they, I, you know, as uh, Albert Hirschman says in mm -hmm. his book, Exit Voice and Loyalty, a lot of times they want the conservatives to leave. They're actually glad to see conservatives go because that consolidates their control. By contrast, they tend to hang on. Uh, they might even go infiltrate mm -hmm. a uh, conservative entity, much the way that uh, this Preuss dude actually did to them. That's like <laughs> the kind of a leftist. I'm coming in to your organization in order to like take it over, which he did, and set it straight. I'm like, this guy's almost got the heart of a leftist in some ways. Uh, it sounds like in everything that he did, but this he, was a big. Was this was a big mistake for them. And I think, you know, again, the air traffic controllers made the same mistake. Mm -hmm. And this shows, I think, if you're a conservative, the left is most vulnerable if they do something like walk out. That is correct. And so that's something to watch out for. Um, so is that essentially the end of liberalism in the in the LCMS? Or that what? is a complicated and contentious topic. So... Um, when the walkout happened, I mentioned the horrendous behavior by the left-leaning delegates at the 73 convention of the, just the amount of disruption. That was positively saint-like compared to how the student body carried themselves out. Um, they basically would, uh, they looted the entire library. You know, the, the Concordia Seminary staff was on board with the students and the librarians were telling the students, you know, just go grab those books and, you know, we'll get, we'll give them back eventually. So the students would walk into the library, grab shelves full of books and just disappear. Like the whole library vanished, including wow. very rare and valuable books. The Senate's still trying to find. We don't know where they're at. Like even as late as the 90s, the Missouri Senate was sending people incognito to locations that like we thought these books would be so we could get them back. And like I was talking with the uh, seminary professor about this a number of years ago, and he mentioned another little anecdote that I found interesting. Like I think it was the University of Chicago library said, hey, we have a book here with your stamp and seal on it. We don't know how this got here. Mm -hmm. And we're like, OK, we'll take that. Mm -hmm. And it didn't just go on to books like 
like all of the communion set pieces, all of the artwork, like all of that was stolen. The bell carolin and the bell tower, the small bells that could be stolen were stolen. The large bells that couldn't be stolen were sabotaged. I mean, it's like it was that conducted themselves just appallingly. It's like it's a statement to the credit of the Missouri Senate that like we ne really never cared about the stuff. Yeah. The precious, the precious gems in the communion set pieces, silver plated. Yeah, that sucks. We can we can go get that again, but the books kind of take the people off. Mm -hmm. So it's this big. Did the students end up? Most of the students end up leaving too, yep. or uh, almost the entire student body. I want to say there's only a couple dozen. I've talked with a couple of them at my local church. Uh, you know, like a, a couple dozen stuck around, and like. This is another anecdote I heard from one of the students there. So he was kind of drifting between the two, like the majority students and the minority students. And so they had a system where the student body that walked out because they actually continued to live on student housing for the remainder of the term because they had paid for the housing. The I mean, you can't evict those kids. Where, where, where are they going to sleep? Like imagine all the press coverage for that. You know, Missouri Senate evicts entire student body, 2,000 or, or 700 students now homeless. I wonder how well that would go over in the press. So right. after their walkout, they still lived in student housing. And for class, they would basically go over to the gymnasium and they'd sit there for six hours where other students would check boxes on like attendance on who was being part of the walkout and who wasn't. Wow. Yeah. But eventually, like after that year, after that term, they didn't come back. Uh, they have, So after a couple weeks, because the, the liberal leadership of the seminary at the time knew that something like this was happening and they had a plan to basically piggyback their accreditation off of like two other colleges in town, St. Louis University and Eden Seminary. And so they would have buses that would pick up the students once that arrangement was in place. They had buses that pick up the students and they drive them over to St. Louis University and Eden Seminary where the professors would continue their edu education and they could get the course credits, um, you know, that they needed for, for graduation or ordination. Yeah. So you're getting it, uh, uh, what became the, the Seminex idea, mm -hmm. which was that this group of professors who had walked out and been fired mm -hmm. went and set up their own. Uh, Concordia Seminary in Exile, which became known as Seminex, mm -hmm. where they said, we're going to be like the continuing church or whatever. We're going mm -hmm. to be the people who are the, the true seminary. Mm -hmm. And so they went over to these other universities who were obviously very sympathetic to them and set up shop. And the students went there and they, they were teaching and they sort of had mm -hmm. they sort of had their seminary going. Yeah. Um, so they got their provisional accreditation, you know, and so they were be, they were teaching. In record so they, time, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, in record time was only a few weeks. I mean, albeit though they were planning this, you know, a while ahead of time. So it wasn't like they were caught totally flat-footed. Well, yeah, they, they got uh, they got accreditation for their facility, um, and they were able to organize financial backers within the Senate to give them funds to, like, pay the salaries of the professors that have walked out, pay for rent in their facilities. The building's still standing up on grand. And so, like, they, they had to have money to do that. So they organized within the Senate to raise this funding to keep the institution going. And so they, they formed their own Concordia Seminary in exile. 
and after legal action was threatened by the Concordia Seminary being used in the title, they changed the name to Christ Seminary Seminex. Didn't they end up at the University of Chicago or something like that? They want they wound up in a lot of different places. So uh, the the decent law decent majority of them wound up in Chicago, but they wound up in other Lutheran seminaries like Wartburg, Trinity, Ohio, what became what was Trinity, Ohio, uh, Pacific Lutheran. You know, like they're kind of just dispersed around the country. I mean, the left did take care of its own. Like it kind of was not a great situation for those professors, but the left didn't leave them out in the cold. They were at least taken care of. They all had jobs. I mean, that is one of they the all big had jobs. things. And that's another lesson of the, you know, of the Presbyterian uh, church mm-hmm. and others. This is still how it works today. Some, if the, if conservatives somehow managed to quote unquote, claim a scalp in one of these institutional mm-hmm. battles, that person will a hundred percent be taken care of. Yep. Uh, the, the president yeah. of this, the president of in Concordia some way, Senate. In yeah. some way, they won't be left out completely out in the cold. Sometimes yeah. they even get promoted. Mm-hmm. The president of Concordia Seminary in Exile, John Teachin, after the seminary was dissolved and the ELCA was formed, he was basically made the ELCA bishop for Northern Illinois, you know, with, I think at the time, like 500,000 parishioners in the area. So he got taken care of. So the key is Seminex essentially didn't survive in the long term. It never, it it fizzled out. How many years did that take? So it, well, it depends on what you mean by fizzling out. So they formed their seminary and they expected, you know, like they expected their backers within the Missouri Synod to place their graduates into pastoral positions. And when I was doing my research on all of this, I found in the archives of the New York Times, an anonymous quote from a district president who was basically like, yeah, I totally intend to ordain or to to ordain these pa- these graduate student candidates in my district, which I mean, we call them their diocese. Basically, they function like dioceses, they smell like dioceses, but right. we call them districts. Yeah, so like the the president within there basically gives a list of approved candidates to the congregations that hey, you can you can nominate pastors from this list, and a majority of the district presidents, like a majority of them were willing to uh, to place vicars and pastors in pastoral positions, but they did it quietly. And eight would later do it publicly. So they expected that their graduates would be continued to be placed because, you know, the Missouri Senate at the time was retiring a couple hundred pastors a year. And so, well, where are they going to get it besides this other seminary? But the seminary's leadership was wise onto that strategy and basically says, no, we are not going to be subsidizing our enemies. We are not going to be placing you as pastors. And so when the eight district presidents that were placing pastors in uh, did it publicly, uh, the Senate in just an outrage in a later later uh, convention passed a resolution granting the synodical president the power to remove a district president if they didn't follow the ordination process in the Constitution. So mm-hmm. like... And during all of this, the liberal faction of the Senate wasn't just playing passively. Not only were they organizing donations for their faction, they were also trying to drum up support within both the bureaucracy and within the district presidents and within churches. So, like, we have those eight public people who are defying the Senate's resolutions. Um, Four of them or three of them resign rather than implement the Senate convention. One just kind of stops and four are fired. Well, the four that were fired, that like 
with the timing of all this, the district conventions were happening a little bit later in the year. So after the presidents were fired, the fired presidents were actually reelected by their districts and mm. actually fired again. And like, we're talking huge majorities and Price, the people who knew him best called that day, the darkest and lowest day of his entire life, because eight of the 35 districts minimally he expected to, to bolt. Look, look at the actions of, of what happened in those district conventions. They fired them and were reelected. And he expected to lose half uh, half of the Senate, you know, at least a third. And I called him a politician as I didn't mean that as disparagement, but he did have a sense that he was serving the church. And he was just terrified that he was going to be basically breaking the Missouri Senate by his doctrinal stance. And by all the interviews I came with him, the man was in tears when all of this was happening. So it was like, it's, it, it was a pretty tough time. So a couple of things I, I want to highlight mm -hmm. on that. One is that there was this unique element of, mm -hmm. of the Missouri Synod that you had to have graduated from one of their seminaries to be mm -hmm. appointed as a pastor. Mm -hmm. So that provided the, the entree for the denomination mm -hmm. to reject these seminex credits. Yep. Secondly, was that um, there was this potential, I think it was seen as a potential that this mm -hmm. was going to cause a number of the more liberal churches and districts to just leave and form their own yep. Senate, which apparently they can. My mm -hmm. understanding is that in the Missouri Synod, certainly the local con congregations actually control their own property. Yep. So unlike in say Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Methodist, you really can't stop a church from leaving mm -hmm. or maybe even a district from leaving in the way that those other ones can because they can attempt to seize your property. Yep. Uh, so they so, had the ability, this is one where they actually had mm -hmm. the ability to walk away. Yep. Now, didn't some group of churches actually break off? They did. A lot of the more uh, a lot of the more liberal leaning churches did. So we go back to the whole district precedent things. You have eight of them that the, the price administration was just outright expected to bolt in toto. And then you had lots of other districts like the Oklahoma district, the Texas district, the Rocky Mountain district and a handful of others that were also surreptitiously ordaining uh, Seminex graduates, but not too many of them. He was expecting a huge chunk of those to bolt, too. And so, like, minimally, Teachin was expecting 1,200 congregations, potentially as many as 3,000 to leave, like, whole districts. But ultimately, that didn't happen. So after the districts had defiantly reelected their presidents, the delegates went back to their churches and were like, okay, everyone, time to leave. And the lady responded like, actually, we're perfectly happy where we are right now. And so... And then a lot of the more savvy pastors got um, were not exactly profiles of courage and said, okay, I like my job. I'll just stay here. And so you mentioned like the liberals leaving. So like 50 or 50 real congregations and maybe like 200 other rump ones uh, left with it. So we, there's never been a firm accounting of who left and who stayed because, you know, let's suppose that there's some congregation that, you know, like it's parishioners all left, but it's like, was on pa a paper congregation, like, oh, that congregation voted to leave. Well, that actually didn't really exist to begin with. Like a lot of those would leave. And so it was about 250, about a hundred thousand members. Although some of the congregations were some of the most uh, prominent 
congregations in the Senate. And I'll ask you a favor. Can you uh, pull up Google Maps on uh, your computer and show it to your audience really quick? Okay. Yeah, let me uh, see if I can do this. Google mm -hmm. Maps and... You're searching for Concordia University, Chicago, and you want to turn the satellite overlay on to actually see the buildings and the houses. Okay, so I'm going to do that here momentarily, and then, uh, okay, now let me, uh, da -da 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 -da. Oop, share screen, window, okay, here we go. Mm-hmm. Is this yeah, right? That is exactly right. You see that in the top right corner, that uh, bar that says Grace Lutheran School? Yes. If you look at that, that is the entire Concordia Chicago campus. But Grace Lutheran School is, you can actually see the imprint of the cross out form, the cruise yeah. form uh, imprint of the church. That's Grace Lutheran Church or River Forest Lutheran Church, as it was called at the time. That church was the campus church for Concordia Seminary. That church is not part of the LCMS today. Hmm. It's actually a de facto congregation of the ELCA. Even if, if you zoom out, it is on the campus and shares facilities with the university. Interesting. Yeah. So, so like, so it's like it would be like the uh, uh, the basilica there at the University of Notre Dame joining mm -hmm. the uh, SSPX or something yeah. like that. <laughs> That's exactly right. Like the the, the the campus church of Notre Dame joining the SSPX. That's a great example. But it's like. <laughs> I'd say there was only about 50 or 60 real congregations that they got and maybe a handful of rump others, but the 50 to 60 they got were overwhelmingly concentrated in places like that, that were handling the professional managerial positions, both within the church and society. So the 50 congregations that left, you know, were among some of the wealthiest and most influential congregations in the Senate. So the, the loss there was a lot harder than, you know, just 50, 50 real and 200 or so other rump ones leaving. It was actually it felt a lot worse. Yes. I mean, again, you see this uh, in general, I think, with these conservative denominations tend to be more middle class and, and mm -hmm. down, whereas the more le liberal to moderate mm -hmm. congregations tend to be the big, wealthy establishment mm -hmm. congregations. Uh, and um, yeah, so that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. And so Another they did, there was a split. Mm -hmm. And those churches essentially mostly ended up in the ELCA. Yep. My understanding, again, from my deep research into Wikipedia, <laughs> is that when some of these churches left, they immediately began ordaining women, mm -hmm. which was something that the Missouri Senate had not allowed. That That is correct. Uh, Missouri Senate has what's called altar and pulpit fellowship, whereby, you know, it, it's like an agreement whereby pastors like parishioners can commune at another church without permission of their local pastor. And the pastor from another denomination can preach and administer sacraments within a Missouri Senate uh, church. So we have we have agreements with that with a variety of different smaller uh, bodies. And so they the other more liberal Lutheran churches um the rump Missouri faction almost immediately declared full of full communion and full fellowship agreements with all of these more liberal Lutheran churches. They, you know, joined that illustrious organization known as the national council of churches. Right. <laughs> they joined the world council of churches. They joined the Lutheran world federation that, you know, had been condemned by name in synodical resolutions for over 70 years. And so they immediately began like, 
incorporating more and more, uh, you know, more and more liberal teachings within the, within their 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 uh, their own churches that they had control of. They were no longer constrained by the history and tradition of the Missouri Synod. Yeah, and I thought that was really important, and I wanted to highlight it because my observation has been that more liberal or moderate people embedded in conservative institutions are often doing what I call disguising their power levels. Mm -hmm. They're far more liberal than they let on. And I just say you should operate under the assumption that anyone who shows sort of mm -hmm. liberal ten tendencies and sympathies, you should make the assumption they're probably far more liberal than you know. They're just they're, remaining silent because they know that- That's true in some that, cases, but it's not true in others because like some people can't hold conflicted, you know, conflicted positions where, you know, they might be like a, you know, a, a liberal on one issue, but a more of a conservative on the other. And a good example of this is the, uh, the president of the student body of the Concordia Seminary that organized the walkout and led everyone away at the end of his career. He had his church vote delete the ELCA over continuing liberalism. So it was like, yes, people who display liberal tendencies might, but people are often conflicted and they hold positions that might, might surprise people. And so I believe that it, that insight is what allowed Preuss to hold the church together. Because if mm -hmm. he had, for example, disciplined all eight of the district presidents, like the text of the resolution said he should do, but he only disciplined four. Like if he disciplined all eight, you know, like would he have scared the moderates away? Like he couldn't just go through this purge because he realized that he needed to at least hold this position, hold this thing together, which is what makes the tactical error that the faculty made so egregious. It's because if, you know, like um, if the PCA decided to go finally get control of Covenant Seminary and deal with all the problems that are going on there, like if they just like marched in there and started writing pink slips to people, would that get the vote of the uh, broader church? Or would you have to be more tactful and more mm -hmm. strategic about how you handle that? Mm. So it's a bit of a long yeah. digression. When did Seminex officially dissolve? They held their last graduating class in the early 1980s because they only got 50 real congregations and 250 rump tiny ones that are in the middle of nowhere. So like when you only have 250 spots and you have 600 candidates for graduation and the Missouri Synod has basically uh, totally shut you out, you know, where are your graduates going to go? Um, the, uh, the most liberal Lutheran church took a few, but you have institutional considerations there. It's like, we want to take people from our own institutions and not someone else. And the American Lutheran church, which was like Missouri's, uh, I'll call them their half brother. So like the, the American Lutheran church, the half brother of the Missouri Synod, like the graduates that were coming out, even though the American Lutheran church was publicly backing Seminex, they started interviewing the, interviewing the graduates to colloquy them into the American Lutheran church. You're like, wow, you guys are way too liberal. And they actually wouldn't even ordain them then. So Seminex struggled for pastoral positions, which means eventually the donations and enthusiasm on the left dry up. And that's an important note because conservatives often make the uh, assumption that liberals have this boundless energy and resources. 
It's also that's that's not always true. And this is an example where it wasn't where the donations into the into the seminary started slowly tapering off, and that forced teaching to lay off faculty and try to find some way to take care of all them. But yeah, they held their last nat- graduating class in 1983, and then it existed as kind of like a paper institution until it was finally dissolved and merged in with the Chicago Seminary. But yeah, so it lasted as a real institution less than 10 years. So Concordia Seminary in St. Louis lost 90% of its faculty mm-hmm. and a large percentage of its students, majority of its students. How mm-hmm. long did it take them to rebuild? The... The loyalty that the Missouri Senate shows towards Concordia Seminary is, is really, really um, important. And so we were willing to back that institution that was founded as a log cabin and built by parishioners. And so there was loyalty to that institution. So after the, Concor- after the Concordia University system barred Seminex recruiters from their campus and they shut down the college that was feeding Seminex students, you know, they started going into the uh, Concordia Seminary. And so after about six years, the student body level was back to where it had been six years earlier. That's why that's, I, every time I see conservatives try to lead a walkout, I'm like, don't do it. Struggle for control of that because you'll be surprised what you're able to build if you have access to the buildings, the brand, the history, the traditions that are located on that campus. I agree. And often, you know, you don't have a choice but to leave. So I don't want to totally Mm poo-poo leaving, but certainly conservatives have been very quick to push the exit button Mm -hmm. on a lot of things and have tended to dramatically underestimate the value of institutions, Mm -hmm. brands, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. There's way more value in those than you think. And yes, you can rebuild from scratch, but it'll take a long time to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an uncertain uh, task. There's no guarantee it'll work. And it's highly unlikely you will ever build anything with the sort of institutional prestige, cachet, mm-hmm. influence that the previous ones did. Yeah, the, the, the rights record on forming new breakaway institutions is, putting it mildly, mixed you know, the biggest success story was Westminster out in Philadelphia, which was basically founded uh, like Princeton basically had the opposite of 7X way back in the 1920s. Right. Presbyterian audience probably knows all about that. Right. So, yeah. you know, now, to be fair, the guys that did that, yeah. they were actually kicked out of Princeton. They didn't leave <laughs> Princeton. They didn't walk out of they were kicked out so that you, yeah. they had no choice. Okay, you're the you're the Basically. Presbyterian. So I, well, I will maybe not. To, maybe he yeah. wasn't kicked. He was kicked out of the denomination. Yeah. Maybe he wasn't kicked out of Princeton. Uh, yeah, I will defer to the Presbyterian expert yeah. on, on the minutia of Presbyterian well, history. I'm not, I'm yeah. Not, yeah, I got some uh, some uh, commenter here. Uh, yeah. Lance says the URC should not have left the CRCNA. So that was that is exactly off. correct. Yeah, and uh, you know, so that's a that's a. A Dutch reformed uh, split mm-hmm. that happened. A conservative group b- broke off from the the Christian Reformed Church over women's mm-hmm. ordination, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're right. I mean, I, I do think that conservatives have a decent track record of building alternative institutions, uh, but uh, I, I think what the the Concordia Seminex situation reveals to me is that the left is really bad at creating yes. new institutions. If they lose control of that institution. Mm-hmm. They are in a much worse place yep. than the conservatives would have been if they had to start mm-hmm. over from scratch 
which gives double value to holding mm -hmm. control of that institution. The left's very good at capturing institutions. And they've built a few things. I'm not saying they can't build things, they, mm -hmm. you know, but um, they're very good at taking over things that already exist. <laughs> The, uh, the when the Southern Baptist Convention split in the 2000s with the Co Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, um, they founded their own network of seminaries. All of those seminaries have since closed, like every single one of them. So like you just go run down the list. And the I, I, is he is the CBF even around as an institution? It anymore? is still it still exists. I I've just been hearing less and less of it over the years. Maybe I'm just reading different sources. Yes, uh, in fact, I. There's some stuff going on with them right now. Uh, oh. There's uh, some controversies, uh, you know, that I, I won't talk, I won't go into because I don't know yeah. all the details. Uh, but uh, and and yeah, of course, the SBC has its own controversies going on right now. Um, again, over you know female pastors mm -hmm. and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I think it is one of those things. That's another one where the uh, my understanding is the uh, SBC conservative resurgence was sort of inspired by the Missouri Synod. They, uh, they all knew each other. Like like all the leaders of the SBC knew all of the leaders in the Missouri Senate Seminex controversy. Right. And so, yeah, like uh, John Warwick Montgomery, Robert Preuss and his, and his two sons, J.A.O. Preuss, they were constantly networking and working with each other. You know, like Francis Schaeffer was in St. Louis teaching at Covenant Seminary during the entire decade where all of this happened. And like I've, I've been to the church building he used to preach at. It was uh, just north of Forest Park. Uh, the congregation moved out west, but like the building is, is still there. And it's like he was literally watching the campus almost from his pulpit. And so like mm -hmm. he was working with them. Uh, he had like a lot of the uh, Paige Patterson was constantly in contact with them and that they were networking together, which is one of the most important lessons we can take from this is the importance of networking and that when you are fighting for a church, understand you are not fighting alone. And it's important that you reach out with like-minded people in other traditions to basically draw strength from each other because, you know, people get stronger when they are in a group and they're motivated towards the, the same purpose. And so just don't underestimate that networking. Yeah, and so, you know, kind of one of the downstream impacts of this mm -hmm. whole situation was the SBC conservative resurgence and then mm -hmm. the split off of the more liberal Baptist congregations to form the Cooperative Baptist mm -hmm. Fellowship. Uh, so this thing had a lot of um, a lot of things going on. And of course, as this was going on, really right as this mm -hmm. is going on, the Southern Presbyterian split, uh, conservative split off to form the Presbyterian Church in America. Mm -hmm. So they did not stay and fight. And, uh, you know, Presbyterianism, I think, is in some respects the worst form of church governance in terms <laughs> of this stuff. You know, I think there are. That's why I bring up mm -hmm. some of these points is, uh, you know, there were a lot of things about the way that these Lutheran denominations functioned constitutionally mm -hmm. that really aided at some of this. It's much harder in some of these, uh, Presbyterianism is way more mm. complex and it's like the definition of bureaucracy <laughs> in some ways. Presbyterians and, uh, are the church of, is the church of lawyers. So exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I don't want to go too, too much of that, but I really feel like, man, uh, you, you built all these checks and balances, mm -hmm. sort of like our system of government, which was sort of modern on modeled on Presbyterianism in some way. 
Yeah, you know? a, a lot of people don't know this, yeah. but the constituting convention for the for the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church in the United States, was happening in the same city at roughly the same time as the constituting convention for the United States Constitution, yeah. and many of the same men went to both of them. Yeah, and now we see some of the the sand in the mm-hmm. gears that yeah. that, that and, and how it creates opportunities, you know, mm-hmm. for people on the left to exploit this, to be mm-hmm. able to do different things oh, at the local level down here. I got that. And so when you're dealing with people who are generally more savvy, they thrive off of that kind of bureaucratic complexity, organizational complexity. And sometimes all these checks and balances, mm-hmm. they, they, they sound great in theory, but then when you see how it works out in practice, it doesn't always mm-hmm. work out as, as well as you think. A I written am constitution told, is only as good as the values of the people who sign it. Right. Now I have heard that there are some Presbyterian, small Presbyterian denominations that had a flirtation with certain more liberal positions, like mm-hmm. women's ordination. I think the uh, uh, RPCNA might have flirted with women's ordination in the '50s or something like that, yeah. and turned back from it. But in general, I always say I'm not aware that there's ever been a conservative resurgence in a Presbyterian denomination. I think maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you know of one, but uh, uh, I, I, I don't can't. know. Now, maybe. maybe the- Maybe the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, because yeah. my understanding is that it used to be much more liberal than it was today. But like I, that's the only one that comes to yeah. mind. And that wasn't a result of a fight. That was just they kind of leaked left and then slowly started leaking yeah. right. That's yeah. the only one I could think of. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's it's interesting. Uh, again, I'm not you know writing off Presbyterians by any means, mm-hmm. but I think you got to look at it like where's this thing happened and how did it work? We know it happened in the Lutheran churches. We mm-hmm. know that it happened in Baptist. Uh, and you, it would be good to look at these case studies because they're very interesting uh, to see. And I'm sure there's a lot more we could talk about, mm-hmm. but we've been going for an hour and 15 minutes. And, uh, <laughs> so I want to say thank you so much yeah. for your time. And this is really great. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I might even go delete my old podcast. So now I can say this is the podcast <laughs> with the guy that actually knows what he's talking about and didn't just read the Wikipedia article about it. Could do it. You know, the one thing I, before I got, I got kind of mm-hmm. one uh Thing I want to run by you and then we'll wrap it up. It seems that there really isn't a good history of this that's been written. Uh, I think all the books that were written about this situation were written by that guys like that teaching guy. It was all written mm-hmm. by the losers and that there's it's, no really good history of this. Is that true? That is true. Um, the reason why is because it was, it was a family dispute. Like the previous president before teaching, uh, Fuhrbringer, his grandfather was the guy who hauled the lumber to Perry County to build the original seminary. His father was a previous seminary president. Um, we had like, so J.A.O. Preuss, his brother, his, not his brother, his, I believe, cousin, I forget the exact family, really, one of his family members was leading the American Lutheran Church, which was driving it. So this had all of the family effects, and this was so bitter, so personal that this is not something you would wish on anyone, even your worst enemy. Like it took 10 years off the life of every single person who was engaged in that conflict. It's interesting because Paul Vanderclay described the CRC very much that way. The same thing. Mm -hmm. This is like uh, this, this denomination isn't just a bunch of people who all go to the same church. It's like families that have go back generations Mm -hmm. in this denomination. I mean, horrific fights were playing out in congregations, like entire families uh, when the con when, when the when the conflict ended, 
there was an unspoken like rule you did not talk about what happened here nobody talked about what happened here and even amongst the students like at the time that i that i talked to here whenever i would try to gently broach that they would all say to me it's too soon i don't want to talk about this wow. so like it, it's it was an ugly affair well it sounds like the kind of uh thing that's crying out for a historian or a aspiring doctoral student to uh, <laughs> really, you know, come up with a canonical history of what happened, not mm -hmm. in a, a conservative way or a liberal way, just the facts, I, I think would be really, really good. And so, um, yes, uh, I got to another Lance again, says mm -hmm. that J.A. Price's father was the governor of Minnesota. That is correct. So yep. these are people, maybe that's why he was a good politician. He learned <laughs> yeah. at his father's knee yes. uh, how politics works there. Yep. So, Eric Lefevre, thank you very much for joining me and talking about mm -hmm. what happened in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Oh, thank you so much, Aaron, for having me.